This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Jesus, from the time he started teaching the disciples, over and over again, he tries to shift their thinking away from thinking there are two categories, sinners and saints. But they're not getting it. No matter how many times he teaches, they're still the same people. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. You make me Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining me on the program. Pastor Jeff is about to bring us a message called One Life. He's preaching from what he claims is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. He says it's Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, and it's the story of a Canaanite woman who is speaking to Jesus. Now, at the moment, this is a woman who has deep faith and a little bit more understanding than even the disciples who are following Jesus. Now, this is a really interesting passage of scripture. Pastor Jeff is gonna unpack it for us, so let's not wait any longer, and let's get into the message with Pastor Jeff. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Matthew 15, 21, one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. And you're going to see why just in a few moments. As you're turning there, a few years ago, I heard a story about these two brothers that were very wealthy, and they lived in a small town. They weren't very friendly, though. They were, they were very unkind to the poor. They, uh, they monopolized, uh, they used people as a means to an end. They were scandalous. Uh, they were uh, cheaters and swindlers. Nobody really liked them, but they had a lot of money. One of the brothers died. So it left the other brother to make the arrangements for the funeral. So the brother still living went to the local priest and said, look, I want you to do my brother's funeral, but I have a stipulation. I know that you're trying to do some renovations around in your church, so I'll help you pay for those. As you know, my brother and I have quite a bit of money. We'll help you pay for those, but in the eulogy for my brother, you have to refer to him as a saint. And the priest knew that would be difficult because everyone in town knew he was nothing but a swindler, a cheater, and it would be a very difficult thing to do. But he said, let me sleep on it. I'll get back to you tomorrow. He slept on it. Next day, he said, you know what? I think I can do it. He said, if you'll help me renovate this and make all the changes, if you'll make a donation, then I'll do your brother's funeral, and I'll refer to him in my eulogy as a saint. And so the eulogy came, time to give the message. And he looked over in the casket and he said, everybody in this town knows this man right here who has passed was a cheater and a swindler. And no one liked him, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> I like that story. I heard that a long time ago. It's not that funny, but it's funny enough. It barely makes the cut. Jesus from the time he started teaching the disciples, over and over again, he tries to shift their thinking 
away from thinking there are two categories, sinners and saints, that we're all in the same boat. And that you can only be brought into a right relationship to God by grace. God has to reach down and do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. But they're not getting it. No matter how many times he teaches, they're still the same people. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, he takes them on a little bit of a vacation up to a region called Tyre and Sidon, uh, the northern part of the uh, uh, Mediterranean. It's a place where, you know, you put the sunglasses and the hat on so nobody will recognize you and you go have a little bit of rest and relaxation. He takes the disciples there. We don't know how long it took, but soon after they arrived, this Canaanite woman comes up and approaches Jesus and says, Lord, please help me. She actually refers to him as son of David, which means she has a little bit of understanding that this is the Messiah. So she had a little more understanding than the disciples had. They still don't get this whole thing, but they know Jesus is pretty awesome because he does these cool miracles. But they're not sure how it all fits together. They still think his kingdom is a literal one where they're going to take over the Romans, overthrow the Romans, and they're going to have power on earth. And so when the lady comes up, because she's a Canaanite woman, the disciples want nothing to do with her. Because in their minds, people who come from this region are at the very bottom of the spiritual barrel. They, they're, they're saints and they're sinners. The disciples are saints. This woman is a sinner and she's too far gone. There's no need to spend time with her anyway. Jesus can't help her. She comes and she begs Jesus to come and heal her daughter who is ill and is close to death. And I want you to notice, if you're in the text, I'm not going to put it on the screen, I'll tell you the story, but you can find it in the text. Just after verse 21, as you read down, Jesus' initial response to her is to ignore her. The Bible clearly says, and Jesus answered her not a word. So here's this woman, and you can understand why scholars struggle with this. This is not typical Jesus. Here's this woman that needs desperate help. The disciples don't care. And basically, she begs him, and he turns away. The disciples come to Jesus and say, look, she keeps following. Send her away. She keeps chasing after us. And of course, that's a bit grandiose, isn't it? They're not after us. They're after Jesus. But the disciples have hopped on the bandwagon. And so the next response is even more astonishing. Jesus looks to the disciples and says, yeah. I was only sent for the house of Israel, which is Jesus' way of saying, I wasn't sent for her kind. You with me? So first, she begs, Jesus ignores her. Second, she begs again, the disciples say, send her away. Jesus says, yeah, I wasn't sent for her kind. Now, if you had been a disciple, at least by this point, you'd think you'd start thinking, wait a minute. What do you mean you wasn't sent for her kind? You just spent half a day with a Samaritan woman by a well. Not too long ago, you healed a Roman centurion's son. And the Roman centurion, they rule Israel with an iron fist. What do you mean? You said at the end of that story that many would come from the east and the west, that the banquet table would be filled from people of all nations, of all languages. What do you mean you, was all, you were only sent for the house of Israel? But that's not what happens. The Bible says again, she moves closer. And this time, uh, the, the word proskuneo is used. She, she falls flat down. Basically, it means she kisses his feet. She worships him and begs him, please, Lord, 
my, my, my daughter is near death. Please help me. So she knows something about his power. She's hoping that Jesus will have compassion. And his third response is this. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So the first time, Jesus just ignores her. Second time, I wasn't sent for your kind. Third time, he calls her a dog, compares her to a dog, which is the absolute worst insult you could ever give anybody in Jesus' day and time. So what's happening? Can you understand why scholars say, let's have a look at this. You will not find Jesus responding to anyone like this anywhere in the New Testament except here. To understand what's happening, we have to remember that Jesus is probably one of the greatest teachers ever. And we see him throughout the New Testament Gospels entering in a teaching method that is called deliberately induced frustration. It's where instead of just dispensing information to the disciples who aren't getting it, he knows they need remedial help. And so rather than just dispense truth to them, and by the way, if you've ever studied in your life, if you've ever uh, gone to university or taken a class, if you've ever studied, you know that the best teachers are not the ones that just stand up and read off a page and dispense information to you. They are boring, and you're trying to take notes and get it all in because all you're worried about is the test. But you're really not learning it. Your best teachers are people who put you in situations and create tension to where you have to think about what it actually is that you believe about this issue. And so Jesus will constantly put them in situations to create the tension to get them to open up within their own assumptions. Let's, a few examples. He tells them to feed 5,000 people knowing there's not enough food to do it to see how they'll respond. So a couple of them, I think Philip and Andrew, they start looking for a kid's lunch. I think Jesus is hoping one would stand and say, you know, it's impossible for us to feed this many people, but with you, Jesus, all things are possible. They don't do it. He puts them out on an, uh, the Sea of Galilee knowing that a storm is brewing. And then he goes up to the top of the hill and watches how they'll respond. Will they panic or will somebody come and say, Jesus, this is nothing for you. We've already seen what you can do. You can calm the winds and the waves, but they don't do that. They panic. He's having Passover with them before the crucifixion, and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll not have any part of the kingdom of heaven. And then he just kind of sits back and waits and see what they'll say. I mean, that's hard. What? Eat your flesh, drink your blood? Please explain. It's called deliberately induced Frustration. Let me frustrate you to the point where you've got to come to terms with what it is that you really think and really believe. Jesus has been teaching day after day, month after month, to try to get these disciples to see there's no us and them. We're all in the same boat and we all need the grace of God. But they're not getting it. So he puts them in a situation here to induce frustration. I think what happens here is Jesus doing this. She comes to him. He knows that the disciples think that she's not worth his time. So he ignores her in hopes that one of the disciples will come forward and say, okay, Jesus, I realize that, you know, we're not going to help her, but you, to ignore her, that's a bit harsh. It doesn't work. No disciple stands up for her. Instead, they come and say, send her away from her. Or send her away from us. And Jesus, almost as if to say, yeah, I don't have time for any Gentile female riffraff. Send her away. But he doesn't send her away. Instead, he waits for a disciple, maybe, to come and say, Jesus, I mean, that's, that's harsh. First you ignore her, now 
Now you say that you weren't sent for her kind? Let me show you how you've demonstrated otherwise in the past. But no disciple does that. Jesus is giving them a visual of what he knows they believe in their heart in hopes that what they believe in their heart, they'll see is so wrong. And then finally, to take it just to the line, she says, please help me. The disciples don't defend her. And Jesus looks back and says, okay, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. I mean, this is right on the line here. And still the disciples don't respond. Now, one thing that you notice in the story that you don't see in your English translation is that even though Jesus is taking this lady through this process, every step of the way, he's softening it a bit for her. I think she's the smartest one in the story because Jesus is balancing this act of teaching the disciples without hurting the lady, which is why she sticks around. When Jesus gets to the part where he says, it's not right to give the children's bread, to the dogs, he uses the diminutive form for dog. Uh, let me give you an illustration. I heard a story years ago where a guy comes in on a Kawasaki 500, that's a small bike, and he, he, he rides around with his chihuahua on the back. Chihuahuas. They're almost as bad as cats. They're like a, a over, over, I don't know, a glorified rat. But anyway, here they are. He rides around with his little chihuahua. He pulls his bike in in front of a bar right next to a guy who owns a Harley Davidson and rides around with his Great Dane. You know how big a Great Dane? That's a big dog. And the big guy looks over to the little guy and says, dude, you can't park your bike there. When you go in, my dog will kill that dog. But the guy goes in anyway. So they both go in. They're drinking for a while. About 15, 20 minutes goes by and the little guy runs out. He's gone for about five minutes, runs back in and he looks at the big guy and says, dude, you're not gonna believe this. My dog killed your dog. And he said, wow, what? No, wait, what happened? He goes, my dog got stuck in your dog's throat. <laughs> okay, so that helps you see a little picture of a big dog and a little dog. Jesus looks to her and says, it's not right to give the children's bread to the little doggies. And then she picks up on that. And what she actually responds back to Jesus, in the original language, she picks up the diminutive form that Jesus used for dogs and applies it to bread, so that the actual translation reads like this. She says to Jesus, yes, Lord, but even the little doggies deserve the little crummies that fall from the master's table. Jesus looks at her, and I'm sure there's a smile, and he's, oh, woman, your faith is off the charts. Go, your daughter's healed. He's so impressed with how Mature she is on all of this, and by her allowing Jesus to try to teach these disciples a lesson. Every time I read that story, I see something different. And I want you to hear me on this. It teaches me a couple of things about Jesus that are non-negotiables, that you and I have to have in our lives. Are you listening? That we have to have in our lives. The first thing it shows me is this, and it's the most profound. Jesus is not a fan of the type of corporate growth that ignores the needs of the individual. Jesus is not for using people as a means to an end. The individual, every person matters to God, every single one. We gotta get this right. From the disciples' perspective, Jesus doesn't have time for this one person. He's mass communicating. 
And they got conventions and conferences to attend. They're big. And yet time and time again, I see Jesus trying to change that attitude. Story after story, it's not just one or two examples, folks. It goes on and on and on. And every time I read it, I'm more convicted. I have never, ever in my life been comfortable being a pastor of a church this size. I did not come up the ranks like most megachurch pastors do. I spent my life in Africa and in, on the mission field. Somehow God brought me here. I have never been comfortable with the idea that somehow I'm this pastor and I'm, I don't have time for individuals. I've tried my best never to do that. But it's not right. It's not godly. Look, my job is not more important than Christ's job, and he had time for the individual. Think about it. He, he, he tells the disciples, he says, look, the kingdom of God, you want to know what it's like? There's a lost sheep, and I'll leave the 99 to go get the one. And he said in chapter 15, verse 7 of Luke, that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one that repents, the 99 that don't need repentance. And just in case they didn't get it, he said, there's a lost coin, and a woman sweeps the house clean to find the one. And again, he says the same thing. In the presence of the angels of God, there is rejoicing over one sinner who repents. And just in case you didn't get it, he tells the story of the prodigal son and the father embracing and running out onto the road to meet the one that was lost. This is a Jesus, his intentionality, one-on-one -on -one with people just strikes me as amazing. Jesus has 10 days left before he's going to die on the cross. Now, let's go back again. Do you think what Jesus was doing was kind of important? Just dying for the sins of the world, that's all. Just making a way where you and I could have a, an endless hope. So whatever he's doing, would you say that what you're doing in your life is important? Yeah, but do you think it was as important as what Jesus was doing? Probably not. So if he had time to stop and invest in one person at a time, do you think maybe we could? Even when he's getting ready to go to the cross and die, he's still got a lot to do. He's got 10 days left. He's got to sit the disciples down and calm their fears. They're not going to be sure what to do when he's gone. He, he, he's got to get himself mentally prepared for crucifixion. Do you know how many crucifixions Jesus would have seen in his lifetime? Hundreds and hundreds. He knows it's going to be him. He's got to get himself mentally prepared. He's going to try to do that in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's going to be difficult. He's going to sweat drops of blood filled with anxiety. And yet, even in the midst of that, see, if you read a lot of leadership books today that I'm told that I'm supposed to be reading, they'll tell you that Jesus, they won't, they won't say it, but they'll imply that Jesus didn't use his time wisely because he spent far too much time with individuals. He should have been more of a corporate guy. And yet, story after story, I see him taking time I see him on the way to the cross and he takes who knows how long to go to a tax collector's home by the name of Zacchaeus and spend the whole day with this dude. That's going to win him no points with anyone. Zacchaeus is of no political or social use to Jesus who's trying to establish his kingdom, but he does it. 
If he's trying to convince the Jews that he's the Messiah, he's not helping himself by healing the son of a Roman centurion because they think a Messiah is someone who has a literal kingdom on the earth. So why would you help the opposition? But yet he spends time with a Roman soldier. Even Jairus, when he goes to Jairus' house to heal his daughter and raise her from the dead, what does Jesus do? He raises her from the dead. Then he says, don't tell anybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to tell anybody that you raised my daughter from the dead. But why does he do that? Because he knows that Jairus works in the synagogue. And if the Jewish leaders know that Jesus is raising the dead, they're going to come and try to kill him immediately because that kind of power will overthrow their kind of power. And they just can't stand for that. And Jesus is not willing to die before his time on the cross. Think about it. Think about the tension that Jesus would have had all of his life, Satan trying to take him out before he gets to the cross. But why risk it? If that's true, why jeopardize the entire mission for one little girl? Because that's Jesus. Every individual matters. In John 4, he talks to the Samaritan woman, which, by the way, counterproductive to the Jews. Here's what they thought about women in the first century. There's a rabbinic saying that says, he that talks with womankind brings evil on himself, neglects the study of the law, and at last will inherit Gehenna. <laughs> the Gentiles would have seen Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman as a weakness. And then there's a whole other audience that would have seen it as scandalous. Why are you spending that much time with a woman? But Jesus had time for the individual. And here's my point. Do you remember Star Trek, Wrath of Khan? And... Spock goes into the radiation chamber to put the ship back online so they can achieve warp speed to escape the wrath of Khan and his annihilation device. And you remember Spock is overwhelmed, overcome by all the radiation, so he knows now that he can't open the door because the radiation will leak out and the people in the ship, the many, will be harmed. Captain Kirk wants to come in, but he can't come in, too much radiation. So they stand there across the window what does he say? The definitive line, the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. That bothered me for a long time. As far as Jesus is concerned, in his own sacrificial life, he would say the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. But be careful how you understand that. Because I think Jesus' philosophy, when it comes to how we interact with each other, yes, we can give our, we can lay down, no greater love has this than a man lay down his life for his friend. But while it's one thing to be willing to lay your life down for the many, you shouldn't expect to leave others behind to achieve the goal of the many. There's a difference. If you willingly lay down your life, that's cool. But you can't get the corporate group to move ahead and leaving anybody behind. That's not the same thing. Which means that anybody that comes across your path, no matter who they are, no matter how busy you are, no matter how great this church is, every individual counts. Everyone matters. 
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, he takes them on a little bit of a vacation up to a region called Tyre and Sidon. It's a place where, you know, you put the sunglasses and the hat on so nobody will recognize you and you go have a little bit of rest and relaxation. He takes the disciples there. We don't know how long it took, but soon after they arrived, this Canaanite woman comes up and approaches Jesus. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.